Good morning. There are stories that transcend time. Events in our history that capture the, the imagination of every person who hears about them. Adventures so epic that they have the power to change us. The account in the Old Testament book of Exodus of God rescuing his people Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is one of those events, one of those stories. It's a story of gods and kings doing battle. It's a story of miracles, signs, and wonders. And it's a story of a father's love so great that even his most disobedient, thankless, ungrateful children cannot outrun it. Today we're going to start a series for seven weeks in the book of Exodus called Rescued. I believe God is going to use it for great things. So if you're a guest here today at our Germantown or our Washington campus, welcome. I'm excited you're here. It's a great time to be here as we launch this series, as we kick off this series today. Make sure you're here all seven weeks and and you bring your family and your friends because I believe God's going to do great things through this. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters So we will not be going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. It would take two years to do that. So how much time do you guys have? You got an extra hour of sleep, right? We got an extra hour today. Not really. Okay. So we're not going to go verse by verse through um, Exodus. Uh, What we're going to do is I'll each week I'll I'll tell the story of Exodus in kind of narrative form, and then we'll stop here and there to look at verses and chapters and allow the Lord to speak to us like that. But each week, I'm going to ask you to read and study uh, the the chapters that we cover that Sunday, so the following week. So today, we're going to cover chapters 1 through 10. And so I'm encouraging you to read Exodus 1, chapter 1 through 10, Um, and Do that with your family, with your spouse, with your friends, something like that. Um, And that'll set you up uh, for the rest of this series. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever bought, have you ever bought a knockoff before? Have you ever bought like a counterfeit thing before? Um, I used to live in China and my wife and I, when we lived there, uh, we bought lots of knockoffs. Lots of knockoffs. And we learned really quick that there are levels of knockoff, Right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, there are levels of this thing. Like, some knockoffs are actually pretty good. Some counterfeits are pretty good. Uh, but some, not so much. Sometimes, sometimes you get a North Face jacket, and when you look closely, it says North Face or North Face. Or if you're not careful when you're buying, you get those Nike shoes home, and you see that the Nike swoosh is backwards. And you're like, oh, oh, no. Sometimes you can tell it's a knockoff really quick. Other times, not so much. But given time, you can always tell if something's the real deal or it's not, right? Zippers will break or the shirt will come out of the wash all jacked up or the shoes will fall apart and you'll go, okay, that was a knockoff. That was, that was a counterfeit. Well, one, one time I bought one of these babies um, for one of my kids' birthdays. This is like a, a souped-up candle, Okay and it sings happy birthday, and it spins. This one is like $5 locally, but I wasn't going to spend $5 on a candle, right? And so I looked online, and I got it for like 97 cents, okay? Uh, 97, it took six months to get here, but that's, 
just what you do, right? And so it took a while to get here. That's okay. Once it got here, next kid's birthday, I used it, and I found out really quick that it was a knockoff. It was a counterfeit. Because when I lit that thing, it was like the 4th of July, all right? It was nuts. So just imagine we're around the table, kids' faces smiling, that whole thing. Daddy's got this cool candle. I light it, and it just like sparks are going, and it catches on fire as it tries to spin. You know, it blooms as you do that. It catches on fire, and it's singing happy birthday, but in like a robot, like creepy horror movie type way. You know what I'm talking about? It was awesome. It was awesome. It was a dad win for sure. It was a, it was a knockoff. It was a, it was a counterfeit. There's, there's nothing like the real thing. Like it's Heinz ketchup or no ketchup. Am I right? I mean, it's Peter Pan or we're not doing peanut butter today. That's the way it works. There's nothing like the real thing. My point today in today's message is that there is no one like the Lord. There is no one like the Lord. That comes straight from the text in chapter 8 of Exodus, but we'll get there in a moment. The first two chapters in Exodus, they tell us a familiar story. So this is before the people of Israel have entered into the promised land and there's kings and all of that. It's before all of that. So what happened is that God chose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? And he gave him the blessing. Through you, I will bless the whole world. He was the first of God's chosen people. Abraham had a son named Isaac, right? Isaac had a son named Jacob, also Esau, but Esau was the firstborn, but God chose Jacob to bring about his chosen people, Israel. And so Jacob runs from Esau, and there's a whole thing that happens there. You can read about that in Genesis. But Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. You tracking with me so far? Heard this story before? Some of you have. 12, 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 sons of Jacob is Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. And so this is coat of many colors, Potiphar's wife, that whole thing. If you want to brush up on this or you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can find the story of Jacob and his family and his sons from Genesis 25 to Genesis 50. But at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, what happens is that God makes a way for his chosen people, this family, to, to survive a famine by going to Egypt. And Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at the time, is kind to them. He gives them land and food. He takes care of them. And then Exodus starts. And Exodus opens like this in verse 6 of chapter 1. It says, then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So during this time, like 400 years pass, and the Israelites go from a family of like 70 to a, to a multitude of people, a multitude of people. And then it says this in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So Pharaoh um, ends up at that time turning the people of Israel into his slaves. And he makes their lives hard, difficult, horrible, terrible. 
And it changes the destiny of the Israelite people. And Pharaoh then says he's going to do some population control. And he ends up telling all of the Egyptians that if they see a Hebrew baby boy, they are to toss him in the Nile River. And so in mass, the Egyptians begin to drown baby boys, Hebrew baby boys, to take care of the Israelites. It's terrible. It's horrible. You can't imagine. And it's into this context that one of the greatest leaders ever born to the Israelites, probably the greatest leader ever born to the Jewish people other than Jesus, is born, and his name is Moses. Have you guys ever heard of Moses before? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you have. And it's hard, it's hard to overstate the significance of Moses in the Old Testament narrative in the history of the Jewish people, in our history as Christ followers, in God's providential plan from creation to now and continuing. It's hard to overstate the significance of Moses. You probably know Moses' story, though, especially his birth story, because it's like a Sunday school favorite, right? You've heard his story before, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. I'll just tell it to you uh, kind of in summary. So basically what happens is that Moses' parents decide to save Moses. They're going to have to put him in a basket, and they float him down the Nile River, just praying that God will take care of him. God makes it to where Moses' basket floats to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter, in seeing Moses and hearing him cry, takes pity on Moses, takes him out of the basket, and ends up taking him into her family. And so Moses then grows up in Pharaoh's household, in the family, in the household of the man who is oppressing his people and killing his people. And then Moses grows up, and he's about 40, and he st- he's outside of the palace or where he lived, and he, he sees a, an Israelite slave being beaten by an Egyptian. And he gets mad, Moses does, and he, he hits the Egyptian, and it ends up killing the man. A bunch of people find out, and, and Pharaoh issues an order to kill Moses, to have Moses killed. So Moses runs. He runs to a a country nearby called Midian, and he basically becomes like a goat herder, okay? So he's like way out in the wilderness herding goats. He makes a life for himself. He marries. He has kids. He does that for another 40 years. But during that time, um, this happens in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. It says this. During those many days, while Moses is in Midian, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. A couple um, weeks ago, we finished up a series called God Help Me that was just about how when we cry out in desperation to God. He hears us. If you missed that series, make sure you listen to it online or on iTunes. Uh, But 
I won't go into detail here, but, but I do want to say this based on that passage. I, I want you to understand that God does hear you. He heard the cries of the, the Israelites, and he hears your cries. He's not far off. He's not oblivious. He's not uncaring. He's not deaf. He hears your cries. But oftentimes we, we don't go there, do we? A lot of times we don't cry out to God. I mean, we... we vent and we text and we veg and we complain and we talk and we may call the doctor or a friend, but we rarely pray. We rarely cry out to God. We rarely call out to God. Just something to think about in passing here. They called out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard them, heard the Israelites cry, and his answer, his champion, his deliverer that he provides to the Israelites is a disgraced, scared, insecure goat herder out in the wilderness, a fugitive on the run. And so Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out doing the shepherd thing, and he sees this bush that's burning, and That wouldn't be a big deal except for this bush was burning but not being consumed. In other words, it was burning but not burning up. And so he went to go check it out. And the next thing that happened made it really clear that this was a miraculous situation because when he walked up to the bush, it began to speak to him. He heard the voice of God and God said, Moses, Moses. And then God proceeds to tell Moses that the ground on which he stands is holy and he should remove his sandals. And so he does so. And God tells Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to go back to Egypt. And I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Have you heard this story before? Charlton Heston. The whole thing. You've seen the movie. Let my people go. You know what I'm talking about. So there's this incredibly miraculous call, this burning bush, this booming voice, this amazing thing is happening to Moses and then proceeds some of the lamest excuses in all of the Bible. I mean, the lamest excuses you'll find in the whole Bible. God's talking to Moses through a burning bush and Moses just starts going, I don't wanna, don't make me. I don't want to do this. I'm not the right guy. Yeah, I don't even know who you are exactly. I can't do this thing. And he just begins to try to tell the God of the universe why his plan is not going to work. And so first he says in chapter 3 that he goes, who am I? First, his complaint is, who am I? It's verse 11. He says, it says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's his first problem with God's plan. Who am I? You got the wrong guy. I can't, I can't do this. God answers by saying, I never asked you to do this alone. I'll be with you. I'll go with you. It's going to be fine. I will deliver my people out of Egypt through you. And then he goes from who am I to who are you? That's verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Who who are you? And God tells Moses, tell them that the I am has sent you. 
Tell them that the creator sent you. Tell them that Yahweh is the one who sent you to them, right? And so he's talking to a burning bush. He's hearing God talk to him. And he keeps having these excuses. One by one, God's handling them. He goes, I'll be with you. Tell them the plan. He says, hey, Pharaoh's not going to like this, but I'm going to end up blessing the people of Israel, and they're going to plunder the people of Egypt on the way out. He does all of that. One by one, he's saying these excuses, and God is handling them. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He's not done. He still doesn't believe. It says, then Moses answered, but behold, they'll not believe me or listen to my voice. For they'll say, the Lord didn't appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Okay, so so Moses goes, they're not going to believe me. And so God turns his staff into a snake and, and he doesn't just do that. He also makes his hand leprous, full of leprosy. And then he heals it. And then he turns water into blood. And he's giving Moses these miracles. And he's going, do these things in front of the people and in front of Pharaoh. And they'll know that I am the one who sent you. He gives Moses these miraculous signs. And still Moses does not agree. Still Moses thinks that this is not a good plan. He still is poking holes or trying to in God's plan. And it says this in Verse 10 of chapter 4, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. In other words, I'm not eloquent, and you're not making that any better. I still got the same problem I've always had. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he, Moses, said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Most scholars believe that Moses stuttered. And so here you have this miraculous call with a burning bush and a booming voice and and all of that. And and God turns his staff into a snake and he makes his hand leprous and then heals it. And then he turns water into blood. And in the face of all these miracles, Moses' insecurity is unabated. He goes, but I stutter. I don't talk good, God. And I love God's answer to that. It's like God's fed up and he goes, who made man's mouth? Who makes him blind or seeing or deaf or mute? Moses, it's me. God's going, Moses, I'm God. I'm creator. I'm Yahweh. (laughs) Something to think about. I wonder if God is not dealing with a bunch of 
insecure, excuse-making, doubtful Moseses with you and me. Letting our insecurities outweigh the miracles that are happening right in front of us. I wonder if we're not Moses. Standing in front of a burning bush. Telling the God of the universe why his plan isn't going to work. There is no one like the Lord. He's the one who made you, every part of you, every weakness and every strength, every personality trait, aptitude, ability, and limitation. Who has made man's mouth? The answer is the Lord. And I love, too, in this passage that we just read, I love, I love what God says to Moses when, when he says, they're not going to believe me. Right? He says, they're not going to believe me. In other words, I don't have what I need to pull this off. I'm not going to be able to do this. I don't have what I need. Do you remember what God says to him? It's verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? So, beloved, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? When, we, when you give God what you have, he transforms it into what you need. When you give God what you have, he transforms it into what you need. There's no one like the Lord, but you gotta give him what you have. You're right, what you have is not enough. It's too little. So then why are you holding on to it so tightly to begin with? Open your hand to the Lord, give him what you have, and he will transform it into what you need. There's no one like the Lord. And this passage, this part of the story also reminds us that God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. This isn't the NFL draft. That's it. You're not at the combine. God's not looking for a star quarterback. You don't have to, you need to stop spending your life, wasting your life, trying to prove to God that you're a first rounder. You're not. God doesn't call the equipped, the people who already have it all together or think they do. He equips the called. And so if you're sitting here going, I don't have what I need, I can't step out (coughs) to do what God has called me to do, then maybe it's because you have yet to accept the calling of God on your life. Maybe it's because you're waiting. And that's what we do a lot of times, right? We know what God wants us to do, but we wait until he gives us everything we need, checks all of our boxes, fills our spreadsheet in, and then we'll go. God, make them okay with it, and then I'll do it. Make it easy, and then I'll, ta- I'll take the step. That's not the way it works. He equips the call, but it's as we step out in faith to accomplish God's will for our lives, his equipping happens. So maturity, growth, equipping, it happens as we live our mission for God, not before. Are you tracking with me? One person's with me. Two. Okay, we got at least two. I can hear from Washington campus. We got 10, 15 over there. They're winning. 
You guys got to read these 10 chapters because I don't have time to get into every verse and every detail in these chapters. There's a lot here that God will speak to you with and through. Um, but basically, God, God uses Moses. Moses is 80 years old, and he goes back to Egypt. He goes to talk to Pharaoh to tell him to let God's people go. And before he goes to Pharaoh, though, he, he, he gets the support of his brother Aaron and the elders of Israel, and that, that kind of gets us through chapter 5. And so Moses and Aaron, they, they muster up the courage to face the most powerful man in the world at the time. And they go to him and they say what God tells them to say. They say, Yahweh, I am the God of creation, the God of the world has sent me to tell you to let his people go. And, and Pharaoh goes, uh, no, not going to do that. In fact, he goes, who are you talking about? What's this guy? I don't even know who you're talking about. And he sends Moses and Aaron away. Pharaoh then proceeds to make the lives of the Israelite slaves even more difficult. At the time, they were tasked with making bricks. And so Pharaoh gives this order that, that they shouldn't, that the, the Egyptians should not give the straw they needed to make the bricks to the Israelites. Take the straw from them, he says, and then have the Israelites go gather their own straw to make bricks and yet still make the same amount of bricks. It boiled down to an impossible task, one that that, that made, made it to where the Israelites were beaten, the Israelite slaves were beaten day in and day out severely for not meeting their quota of bricks. And, and, and that quick, the elders of Israel and the people of Israel turn on Moses and Aaron. They blame them. They tell them to stop. They tell them to leave. And so begins this chronic condition of complaining of waffling and whining in the Israelite people that goes all the way through the book of Exodus. Over and over and over, they tell, they tell Moses and Aaron that they would rather be slaves in Egypt. Fear and doubt so twist their minds that they begin to see slavery as a favorable condition over freedom. Consistently, they tell Moses and Aaron that they'd rather be slaves of Pharaoh than sons and daughters of God. And it's crazy, right? I mean, it's, it's just nuts. But don't we do the same thing? I mean, aren't we also choosing slavery over sonship? Slavery over being sons and daughters of God. We choose comfort over God's calling. We choose convenience over God's will. We choose activity and busyness over God's blessing. We choose preference over God's purpose. We choose sin and addiction over Christ. We choose slavery over freedom. Slavery over sonship. And it's not like Moses stays strong in this moment either. In the face of the people's discontentment and their complaining, Moses then runs to God and he complains. He goes, God, see, I told you. I'm not, I wasn't the guy. I told you to leave me alone in the wilderness. I was doing good with the goats. Why did you, why are you doing this with me? Why are you doing this to me? And God then again tells Moses, I will deliver my people out of the hand of Pharaoh. I will do it through you. 
But then he reveals a little bit more of his plan. He reveals a little bit more of his plan. It's in chapter 6. And he tells Moses that, that part of his plan, part of God's plan is that Pharaoh will say no. Pharaoh will refuse. And it's like, wait, what? I thought I was, what? I thought I was supposed to go and do the miracles and signs and wonders. And then boom, we're out of Egypt. We're going to the promised land. God goes, not exactly. You see, my plan is for Pharaoh to be like a real stubborn jerk in this whole thing. That he's just going to be a real stubborn jerk and it's going to be really hard. And Moses goes, but, but why? Why would it be that way? Look at chapter 7, verse 3. God speaks to Moses and he says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the whole people of Israel from among them. This reminds me of John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus, he heals a man that was born blind. But before he heals that man born blind, the disciples ask him, who sinned so that this guy was born blind? Was it him or was it his his, um, parents before him? And Jesus goes, neither. He says, he, he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, he was born blind so that the glory of God might be shown in healing him today. That's, that's what this reminds me of because what we see as obstacles to magnify our weakness, God sees as opportunities to magnify his strength. What we see as obstacles to magnify our weakness, God sees as opportunities to magnify his strength. Obstacles, difficulties, hard times, roadblocks, enemy forces, stubborn kings, sickness, Sin, political pressure, disunity, blindness, racism, injustice. These are all just opportunities for God to multiply his wonders on the earth. Opportunities for his strength to be made known. The next four chapters prove that, chapters 7 through 10. Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh and they perform the miracle that he told them to perform. They, they turn their staff into a snake. It's verse 11 of chapter 7. It says this. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men after that, after they make their staffs into snakes and do this miracle that God told them to do. It's, this is what happens after. The, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and, the, and the, they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up the other staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the magicians of Egypt are able to counterfeit the power of God just for a moment. And I, I've always wondered, like, how big, Pharaoh, how big Aaron's staff was when he left, right, because it ate the other staffs. I don't know if you guys have ever wondered that. But like, was he carrying a big log out? Was it, could have been comical, I'm not sure. But God, God 
multiplies his wonders. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to send the people of Israel out. I'm not going to do it. And and it is a chance for God to multiply his wonders like he said he would. And the plagues start. He turns the Nile into blood, the Nile River into blood. But verse 22, it says the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. After the Nile turns into blood, then God sends frogs, multitudes of frogs, so many frogs, frogs in your oven, frogs in your bed, frogs out on the street. It's this crazy, crazy thing. But then chapter 8, verse 7 says, the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come out of the land on up on the land of Egypt. And so even though the magicians can do this, Pharaoh says, okay, 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 too many frogs. I don't want any more frogs. I'll, I'll let the people go. And so in that moment, Moses warns him in verse 10. He says this, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So Moses stops the frogs. They all die. It says that they, they pile them up in these huge heaps of just dead frogs everywhere. There's this nasty stink of death all over Egypt. And yet Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. He doesn't send the people of Israel out. He hardens his heart and doesn't listen to Moses. After the frogs are gnats, the desert floor, the dust of the desert turns into swarms of gnats that cover the land of Egypt. And it says this in verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we're at plague three of 10 and the magicians can't hang. So already it's going bad for them. And at this point, they're, they're on God's side urging Pharaoh to relent because this is, they, so they say, this is the finger of God. We can't, we can't counterfeit this. This isn't a trick. This isn't magic. This is the finger of God himself. But Pharaoh doesn't relent. He doesn't stop. He doesn't let the people of Israel go. And, and then after gnats are flies, swarms of them. You can't see the ground because there are so many flies. Pharaoh doesn't like flies. He says, okay, okay, I'll let the people go. And it's in this plague that, that God makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. He doesn't send the flies to where the people of Israel live, only to where the people of Egypt live. The magicians in this verse or in this plague are taking a break. They're nowhere to be found. They're hanging out away from the flies, probably. Pharaoh lies, says he's going to let him go. The flies leave. He doesn't. Verse 32, it says this. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. The next plague is the fifth plague, and it's, it's just that the livestock of Egypt, of the Egyptians, begins to die off, and the livestock of the Israelites is, is kept safe. And so in an agrarian society, this is a huge deal. All the livestock begins to die. The food source begins to wither. And it says this, 
in verse 7, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. After the livestock, the sixth plague is boils. So painful sores begin to appear on the Egyptians. Let's check in with our friendly neighborhood magicians. What do you say? Verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before, Pharaoh, before Moses, I mean, because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So they started by being able to counterfeit the power of God with the staff and the serpents and with the frogs and and the Nile River and all of that, but now the the magicians can't even stand up in in Moses' presence because they've got these painful boils all over them. They've got these painful boils and they're being affected just like every other Egyptian is being affected after, after the boils comes the seventh plague. The seventh plague is hail. Hail so severe that anyone caught outside while it was falling from the sky was killed. The Egyptians, some of them at least, begin to fear God more than Pharaoh fears God and they stay inside and they, they survive. Again, there's no hail, no plague where the Israelites live. After this one, again, Pharaoh acts like he's going to let the people go. Moses stops the plague, but he doesn't. His heart is hardened and he changes his mind. And the magicians are nowhere to be found at this point. They've given up. After hail comes locusts in chapter 10. They eat every plant that the hail didn't destroy. The Bible says that not a green thing was left. Still, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he doesn't let the people go. The ninth plague is a bizarre one, and that's where we'll end today. Next week, we'll pick it up at the the 10th plague. The ninth plague is bizarre because God makes darkness cover the land of Egypt during the daytime. And it's not just that it's like nighttime during daytime. It's not like that. It's that the Egyptians couldn't see each other. God literally removes all light from among them. And yet... He allows light to remain among the Israelites. And so that boundary line of light and darkness must have been strange to behold for the Israelites. Still, Pharaoh says he'll let the people go. Moses stops the plague and... Pharaoh changes his mind, his heart is hardened. And that's the last time that Moses sees Pharaoh. It's 10, or before he sees him, you know, at the, at the sea later in a couple weeks. <laughs> but 10, um, verse 28, says this. Then Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Each time Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, it's a chance for God to multiply his wonders like he said he would. What we see as obstacles to magnify our weakness, God sees as opportunities to magnify his strength. Have you ever 
Have you ever bought a knockoff before? Like, have you ever spent less money and just gone online and waited six months and just got the knockoff? Sometimes knockoffs can look really, the counterfeit, it can look really close to the real deal, right? Sometimes you might be fooled that this is the real deal, but given time, every counterfeit will prove that it's not the real deal. There's no one like the Lord. The story of Exodus is the story of the one true God and a bunch of knockoffs fighting for the affections of men and women, fighting for the worship of men and women. The story of Exodus is the story of your life. It's the story of my life. We have the one true God and we have countless counterfeits vying for our attention, fighting for our affections. Sometimes these counterfeits take the form of dark sorcery trying to copy the power of God, but there is no one like the Lord, no power like his. Sometimes it takes the form of comfort and convenience, wooing us away from God's call on our lives. Some house or place or town or routine, some plan of our own that's keeping us from obeying the God of the universe. But there is no one like the Lord. No better place for you and your family to be than in the middle of God's will for your life. Even if your human brain is struggling to understand that. Sometimes the counterfeits, sometimes the things that, that take our affections and our worship and our attention from the one true God are very, very good things. Things like family, service, morality, activity. Things that take a whole lifetime to find out that they're actually counterfeits. Unable to sustain our worship because there is no one like the Lord. Sometimes this battle between the one true God and the counterfeits, it presents itself in an interesting way. It presents itself in our own insecurity. We're like Moses at the beginning of Exodus who just can't fathom. We just can't fathom that God wants to use us in a big way. We, we can't fathom that, that we could possibly do what God wants us to do, that we could possibly lead our family like God wants us to lead our family, that, that we could possibly submit to our husband and other authority like God has called us to, that we could possibly do what God has called us to do, step out in faith and do what he's called us to do, that, that we could possibly you know, prioritize faith on our calendar above everything else. We can't imagine that we could possibly serve God in singleness like he's called us to. But there is no one like the Lord. And those things may sound really humble. Like, oh, I'm just too small. I'm just too weak. I'm just not good enough. Those things may sound humble, but it's actually just another form of pride. It's just another form of pride. Insecurity is another form of pride because it puts self at the center instead of God. We become the counterfeit. But there is no one like the Lord. There's no one like 
the Lord. Counterfeits are just that. They're fake. They're knockoffs. Insufficient. They are not the real deal. There is no no power apart from Jesus Christ. There is no peace apart from Jesus. There is no joy apart from Jesus. There is no love apart from Jesus. There is no fulfillment, no satisfaction, no calling, no purpose, no life apart from Jesus Christ. There is no one like the Lord. No one. So my challenge to you today, my invitation to you today is to let go of the counterfeit. Whatever it is that you're holding on to that is seeking your affections, your attentions, your worship, let go of it and embrace the Lord because there is no one like him. At all of our campuses, Germantown, Washington, online, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you, God, that you speak to us. My prayer today is, is, is a simple one. It, it's not easy, but it's simple. I just pray that as we leave here today that, that this truth would be drilled deep into our hearts that there is no one like the Lord, that no no counterfeit will suffice, no knockoff will suffice. I pray that you would give us supernatural eyes to see, to see the counterfeits that we're giving our attention, our affection, our worship to, and that we would run from them. And we would run to the real deal. We would run to you because there is no one like you. I pray for the person who has yet to make that stark, distinct, life-changing decision. May they cross the finish line of faith today. It's in your holy and your precious name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. Why don't you stand with me? Here's my prayer for us today. May we give God what we have, no matter how small, and live life on mission. May we see obstacles as opportunities for God to show his strength and his glory. And may we never worship the counterfeits, only Jesus. Thank you so much for coming today and worshiping with us. Make sure you talk this over with your life group. If you're not in a life group yet, You have yet to get plugged into Great Oaks Community Church. That's okay. We'll get you plugged in. Just stop at Connection Central, and they'll get you into a life group or get your information and follow up up with you later. As always, my challenge to you is to not leave here dismissed, but to leave here sent. Go be Jesus followers who make and disciple other Jesus followers. Come back next week with some friends as we continue this series, Rescued, through the book of Exodus. We'll get into the 10th plague and Passover. I'm excited about it. Don't miss it.